Yeah. 
have any favorites tonight, you can just tell me the name of it and we'll find the page number and all that stuff. Just shout it out. Yes. In the garden. In the garden. 425. <laughs> Four flats. <laughs> What's that? Uh, a flat. Yeah, A flat. Ready? <laughs> I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses and He walks I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Zephaniah, where we were this morning. And uh, as I told you this morning, the title of the message was Living Carelessly. 
And we looked at that rejoicing city that the Bible tells us in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 15, lived carelessly. And as we went down through the text this morning, I took you to chapter 3, verse 2. And we looked at the people of that city, and we looked at how they lived carelessly. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. They did not receive correction from the Lord. They did not trust in the Lord, and they did not draw near to the Lord. They chose to live careless, rebellious. In fact, he says, filthy and polluted lives. And we looked at that and we took it and made a personal application in that we stepped back and asked ourselves, what kind of life are we living? And really the big question is not only is the life we're living reflected in that, is our city, our nation, our world, all of which we are a part of. As we go farther in the text, we come down, as I mentioned this morning, and we see that God talks about it through his prophets concerning the politicians of that day, the preachers of that day, and then it talks about the Lord, the Lord of that day and every day. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to pick it up in verses 3, 4, and 5, because this morning you got uh, verse 2, and I'm going to read read again the entire text so that you understand the context. And if you weren't here this morning, it can pull together for you. So I'm going to start here in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 15, and read on down to chapter 3, verse 7. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How is she become a desolation? a place for beasts to lie down in. Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not. But the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever, I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. It's quite a text, isn't it? Quite a description of an old, ancient city. He's not talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about Gentile cities because he is the God of the entire, all creation. So when he talks about 
his relationship with them, he woos and beckons all humanity unto himself. Certainly those people of the city, they could have listened to his voice. They could have accepted his correction. They could have trusted in God and they certainly could have drawn near to him for we live and breathe in his midst. But they did not. And a big reason they did not is the influence of others upon them. Because you and I are all influenced by what goes on around us. We're influenced by media. We're influenced by politicians. We are influenced by clergy and community leaders. That's exactly what he goes on to say down here. As we come down to verse 3, he talks to us about the politicians of that day. He says, her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. So I went back. I wanted to look back and see what's he talking about because he's, he's drawing picture language. He's bringing allegories to us that we're supposed to draw from. But you and I don't live in a world with roaring lions. Uh, the last time you stepped out your back door, you didn't fear a lion or a lioness grabbing you and dragging you in the woods, did you? Maybe a bear, but not a lion. In fact, even in our world today, when he comes down and he references the wolves, he says, her judges are evening wolves. You might hear the coyotes out your back door, but you're probably not going to hear wolves. When I was down in Kansas, I just flew down into Kansas City, went to a meeting and then came back and spent the night at a friend's house and fished, bass fished on, Saturday, uh, on Friday. No, Thursday. Flew back on Friday. But as I was at his house, he's in the country, and as we stepped out his door, we could hear coyotes. Now, I personally like the sound of coyotes. I like that yipping, yapping, howling kind of sound. It makes me feel like I live in the wilderness. Now, that's just me. But wolves are a whole different story, aren't they? And lions even that much more so. So I went ahead this afternoon and I just ran, I ran historical records. I went back and I read about lions and their roaring and what is the, what is the allegory here? What is the picture he's drawing? So when he says to us, her, her princes within her are roaring lions, it's saying they are very territorial and they proclaim their control and their might. I didn't realize that both the lion and the lioness roar. In fact, their, their prides, their group, they dominate their territory by the amount of roars, the different roars. So when they roar, both the lioness and the lion, other prides hear that. And they, I don't know whether they have an abacus, I don't know if they use a smartphone to calculate, I'm not sure how they do it, whether they count the nails on their paws. But they figure out how many different roars are in that pride. And that determines whether their pride will try to take the territory of that pride. So they're, they're proclaiming dominance and control. They're trying to intimidate others 
that they won't step up and challenge that leadership. So when God says to us that the politicians of that day, the princes within her are as roaring lions, even as Satan seeks to dominate, to control, to put his presence foremost, because he, as a roaring lion, seeketh whom he may devour. So also these politicians, the politicians of old and the politicians of today, they try to dominate and to control. They try to influence all of culture, all of society, to follow their way. And, and certainly in my lifetime, if you're not following their way, then they try to make you sound wrong. It can't be that you're just of a different opinion. It's that you're wrong. And more than wrong, they try to make it sound as though somehow you are evil to just stand in opposition. So when we read this, this is not a positive thing. This is a very negative proclamation. To say that their princes are as roaring lions trying to dominate, intimidate, and control their territory. But then he comes down and he talks about wolves. And wolves are an interesting thing as well. He comes down and he says to us, his princes within her are as roaring lions, her judges as evening wolves. And evening wolves are sneaky, predatory. So as the sun begins to set, as it begins to come into evening, they scope their prey. And they look for the weak. They look for the lame. They look for those who are not, not able and agile. And as the sun begins to set, they begin to creep in closer and closer and closer to take their advantage. So the evening wolf is one who's determined to take that which is not his own. To prey upon the weak, the simple. And so here, again, this is not a positive thing he's saying about the politicians of that day. He's saying the roaring lions are dominating, controlling, territory protecting. These evening wolves, the judges, they're predatory. They're taking advantage of the weak. They're taking advantage of those who cannot take care of themselves. Then he comes out and he says the third thing in verse 3. He says that they gnaw not the bones till the morrow. And that is a perplexing thing, as I, as I read and I looked at that. It's an interesting turn of thought and idea for us. Because most of us, we eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Do most of you do that, eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And then there's some who they eat breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack, and then they go to bed. Then there's some, like Zach back here, and so he eats breakfast, then he drinks these green giant things that make him healthy, strong. They're a little scary looking, to be honest with you. It looks, looks just a little bit like that stuff on top of a swamp, but it's good, isn't it? It's great. 
So breakfast, swamp water, lunch, <laughs> swamp water, dinner. You and I, we have our patterns of eating. But the animal world is very different than us. We are a unique creation. The animal world eats on demand. But here it's an interesting thing that he says. He says, they gnaw not the bones till tomorrow. Till tomorrow. So they're not even motivated enough to eat on demand. You see, if a wolf takes down one of John's lambs or sheep, it's going to eat its fill and then leave. Or some wildlife, some predatory life, they'll go ahead and kill, then they'll hide what they have. But they'll still eat what they can, hide what they have, so they can come back and refill. But here he's saying, these politicians, they're not even motivated to eat that which they kill. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll take care of what I need to take care of. Tomorrow, I'll deal with what is at hand. Tomorrow, that pro procrastinating, putting off, lazy attitude of not taking care of, even feeding themselves. Maybe they demand others do it for them. Maybe they demand that others take care of all their responsibilities, but they're not going to do it themselves. They will put it off. And you and I, when we look at the world we live in today, uh, it's a sad thing to look at politics around the world. It's a sad thing to look at. I, and I don't care what party it is that you want to point at. You can say, well, these people on this side or these people. And I'm saying all the sides. Instead of going ahead and representing the people, which is the biblical text of, of us being one nation under God. Instead, they seem to take care of themselves and want everybody to take care of them. They're not concerned for you and I. That's perplexing to me. And it's destructive to a culture and a society. And here, God is calling them out for it. He's saying they have come to a place where they're so territorial, so predatory, so self centered, selfish, that it has brought destruction to their city. But I'm not going to let religious leaders off the hook, and neither does he. He comes down to verse 4, and look at what he says about the prophets of that day. He says, her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. So he talks about those, those people of the city who have been influenced by the politicians of their city who have been let off the hook by the preachers of that day. And he starts off simply by saying, her prophets are light. And I wanted to look that up and I found a cross-reference I wanted to bring you to. Go with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 23, 32. Jeremiah chapter 23, 32. It says, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord. And do tell them, 
and caused my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. It's just such an interesting thing that he talks about these prophets being light and their lightness. When you come to the New Testament, it talks to us about the meat of the word and the milk of the word. Milk, I believe, I think I remember Harmon saying milk weighs, is it eight pounds a gallon? 8.6. 8.6 pounds a gallon. Now, I'm not exactly sure what it would take if we were to cram beef into a gallon jar and how much that would weigh, I don't know. But I don't think he's talking about physical light and heavy. He's talking about spiritual light and heavy. He's saying these people, these prophets, they're teaching, they're preaching. It is gospel light. It's God's law light. And we see this in the day that we live in today. You can, you can turn on your television and you can bring in famous speakers and, and church leaders and you can bring them into your living room and you can listen to them, but it's gospel light. They're not going to talk to you about sin, repentance. They're not going to talk to you about the need to receive Christ because he's, he's the, only way, the, uh, the only way to heaven. Instead, they're going to try to blur it, enlighten it, to make it more palatable. Just like the prophets of old. And we have to be careful when we listen. We've got to be careful of what we read. We need to be careful of what we watch on television. We need to be careful when we let prophets come into our hearts and our lives. We need to be careful that they are not light. So when we come down, look again with me at verse 4, chapter 3. He, it says, her prophets are light. And what's that next one? Treacherous. Now, who would think of preachers, prophets, priests as treacherous? But yet we see it, don't we? Isn't it a sad thing that we see headlines of, of preachers and priests who molest little boys and little girls? It should never, ever, ever happen, should it? Isn't it horrible that we'll go ahead and see a headline where some preacher, some priest, some prophet has gone ahead and taken so advantage of people that they have taken all their life savings, manipulated and coerced. You look at people like Jim Jones who led folks into Guyana and there had them drink poison Kool-Aid and killed hundreds of people. Treacherous, treacherous. And his treachery didn't just happen there. His treachery had gone on for decades throughout his ministry. Look at, look at when you go down, uh, I'm trying to remember now off the top of my head, in Texas, um, Waco, Texas, David Koresh. You know, David Koresh, he would have these families come and he would separate the wives from the husbands and he would lay with their wives with their permission and he'd have children by them with these guys' permission. Treacherous. 
preaching, treacherous prophets taking advantage of other people's weaknesses. God says he looks down and he sees in this city prophets that are light, treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. You know, and it's, it's an interesting thing that you and I live in a day where anything goes with religion, faith, and worship. Anything can happen. The sanctuary, this is our sanctuary, it is no longer looked upon by many as holy. They have total disregard for what transpires, what is said, what happens. As long as it's entertaining, as long as it's acceptable, as long as people will come, they will do anything. And God says, no, that's not right. It is a holy place. There should be limits and lines that should not be crossed. And you and I as Christians, we should have hearts that are sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I was talking to a talking to a friend of mine not too long ago, and he was talking about uh, the praise team in his church, and he was telling me he said he said I'm a little embarrassed. He said I come to church and they get up there and he said they've got these the girls have on these spandex what do you call them legging pants and he says they're shaking it man. He says it's like going to a show. He said it's embarrassing to me. There should be a line, shouldn't there? Should be a line when we say, wait a minute, have we abandoned holiness and righteousness? And have we somehow crossed over? Here he says they crossed over. Her prophets are light, treacherous. The priests have polluted the sanctuary. And then listen to what he says, the last thing in verse four. He says they have done violence to the law. Wow. That is a powerful, that's a powerful description of something that is verbal. They have done violence to the law of God. So you and I, when we, when we look at the law of God, when we look at the Old Testament and all that was given to Moses and all that was transferred to the house of Israel, we, we think of it in terms of preaching and practice. But it's a little hard to grasp violence to the law. It's the most extreme act. For them to go ahead and so rebel, so reject, that it's violence to the law. Not that many years ago, although maybe it's more than I care to admit. Maybe two or three decades ago. That is a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah. The older person I asked, that's not that long ago. The younger person I asked, yes, that's a long time ago. But I remember when uh, the Reader's Digest came out with their version of the Bible, where they had gone ahead through, and they had cut out sections and condensed it down. When I came here to pastor, uh, so now that is 35 years ago, again, decades ago, probably before you were born. <laughs> Close. When I came here, there was a new Bible that came out. Was um, it was the female gender Bible? 
They went through and they took all of the he's and him's and changed them to she's and hers. So even God was a she and a her. And in God's eyes, when you look at those things where you cut into his word and you change his word and you, you, you defile his word, he says, you are doing violence to my law. Now, we live in a culture today where it seems as though there are no lines, no limits. There's nothing that says that's too far. But it should be that we are sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit that we recognize what is too far. In this city right here, they've gone too far. The people themselves, unwilling to yield to God. The leadership of the politicians, self-centered, self-serving. The prophets, the priests, these folks are corrupt and defiling. Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 26 says, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have showed differences between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. God really does hold holy his house of worship. Whether it be the tabernacle. Whether it be the temple. Or whether it be the New Testament church, God expects us to approach it with some sense of holiness. And there are lines that can be crossed that God sees as defiling. And it's up to you and I as Christians to sense and seek and determine what is of the Lord and what is not. Because styles and fashions change, don't they? Everything from clothes to music to lighting to carpet. And we have to decide what is honorable to God and what is not. And all those instruments and tools. Because music is nothing but, a, nothing but an instrument. It's a tool. can be for good or it can be for bad. Where is that line? We have to determine that. Same thing with all things. We have to make that decision in our lives. What honors God and what does not honor God? When I was in Bible college, there was a very famous stripper, person who takes off clothes. And she would go to churches and she would strip for Jesus. What? Telling you the truth. So churches would have her come in, obviously exceedingly liberal churches. And the whole premise was she was honoring the body that God created. But can that honor the sanctuary of God? Can that honor the place of worship? God does care. He does take note. As we come down in our text, this all brings us to the last point. And that is God himself. Because as much as he talks about this city and these people, 
As much as he talks about the people who would not listen to his voice, receive his correction, trust in him, or draw near him. As much as God recognized the princes were as roaring lions and evening wolves, and as much as he was offended by these light, treacherous priests and prophets who polluted the sanctuary. He begins to talk about himself in verse 5 down through 7. He says, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. You know, sometimes we forget that God is everywhere. Even in the most defiling place, God is everywhere. He is doing his beckoning, his wooing, his work. He's trying to draw people out of that place, that time, that circumstance. He's trying to guide them to safety, strength, and health. God is everywhere. Even in the midst of this defiled, putrid city, God says, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. We are reminded of Acts 17. This morning I referenced the Apostle Paul preaching in Athens upon Mars Hill. Look again with me to Acts chapter 17 and listen to verses 22 and 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth and dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. That is the true and living God. That is the great I am. That is the God who you and I know and worship. And it is the God who was there. He says the just Lord is in the midst thereof. And then look as he describes it. So here he is present. He says he will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He fails not. But the unjust knoweth no shame. So he starts off by letting us know that he is the God of Acts 17. He is the God who's the creator God. The God who gives us our very breath and life. He tells us he is not going to do iniquity. No matter how, how debauched the service is. No matter how corrupt the politicians are. No matter how rejecting the people are, he's not going to compromise who he is. He says, I'm there, but I will not do iniquity. He says, every morning, he brings his judgment to light. Every morning comes a new day. 
every morning, these people could have looked around and said, what are we doing? Look at the consequences. Look at our, look at our culture and our nation today. I'm telling you what, I wake up in the morning and I say to myself, what has happened? How insane can we be as a people that we're, we're denying male and female and trying to change it and actually saying we're succeeding? It's insanity. You can't change the biology of a human person. I, I read an article not too long ago where they, they asked the politician, can men have babies? And he straight-faced looked and said, yeah. <laughs> and it's so absurd. It's, it's beyond sanity. And yet, it's part of our culture, our society. Is something wrong. When we get up in the morning and we see the consequences, we see, we see the consequences in our culture. Reading the other day about the high, high percentage of young people who don't have a father in their home. No father in their home. Now, if you were to poll within Bible-believing churches, it's a higher percentage, but it is still shameful at how the family has disintegrated in our culture. And why do people not step back? Only now are they kind of admitting there's a problem, but they don't want to address it. We have a culture that every morning should wake up and say, woe is me. We need to get back. We need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to moral values. We need to get back to cherishing and prizing family and so many other things. Here he tells us, the Lord who is everywhere. The Lord, the Lord God of Acts 17. He's not going to do iniquity no matter what the people want. And every morning he's going to show us the consequences of his judgment. And look at the third part. He says, he faileth not. He's not going to quit. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not going to change. He's not going to change because we're changing. Now, people would like him to change, but he's not going to change. He expects us to conform to him. And it's not hard to understand why. It's because he is the God of Acts 17. He is the creator of all that is. Why should he change for his creation? Amen? Recently, a lot of talk about AI, artificial intelligence. And the concern is that artificial intelligence could run amok and wreak all kinds of havoc. They're concerned about that. But the reality is, I don't even think that's our greatest danger. I think it's the lack of the practice of intelligence. The denial of intelligence. The ignoring of intelligence. When people look at things that are so obviously wrong and say they're right, something's wrong. Here, God says, 
I am not going to fail. I am going to continue to do what I have always done. I will be the same forevermore. But, he gives us a but at the end of verse 5. But the unjust knoweth no shame. And we definitely live in a shameless time. An embarrassingly shameless time. And he warns us in this text of what could happen. So as we look, we see that he is a just God. The God of Acts 17, the creator God. As we come down to verse 7, I want you to see that he is an ever hopeful God. And this is part of what I love so much about the Lord. He truly is ever hopeful. Listen to what it says in verse 7. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction so that their dwelling should not be cut off. So it tells us that God looks down from heaven above. God who is in the midst, he is everywhere at all times. He says within his heart, he says, surely they will fear me. Surely they will receive my instruction. Surely they don't want judgment. Surely they don't want to be cut off. But do you remember what he had just said previously to that? He said, but the unjust knoweth no shame. As much as God is long-suffering and patient. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is so hopeful. He wants to give us the benefit of the doubt. He truly desires that none should perish. But he is a realist. He doesn't deny reality. He doesn't deny truth. He's just hopeful. And he expects so much better of his creation. But he fully re recognizes when we totally reject all that he offers. He is a hopeful God. Long-suffering to usward. But as we come down a little bit farther in the text, we, said that we see that he is absolutely a God of his word. And that's what's so important for us to grasp out of the text. As hopeful as he is, as much as he desires the best from us, the reality is he is God and we are not. So when we read down through the text, you look with me at verse 6. He says, I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed. So that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. It is interesting that God says that absolutely he did bring his retribution. Absolutely they had crossed the line of his long-suffering patience. As much as he really wanted to hope that they would come, they would believe, they would receive, they did not. So what's it say that he did? He let his judgment come upon them. 
It doesn't say that he had to destroy them. He just let them be destroyed. And I think that's an important lesson for all of us to understand. When you look at the, the world empires, you look at the Incas, you look at all these different people. And these were mighty, mighty cultures. But they imploded within themselves, either by enemies outside or enemies within. You look around the world at different empires that had risen up, the Babylonians who once were incredibly powerful. And their empire lies in ruins. They're still digging up the remnants and discovering their things. The Egyptians, the Egyptians were a then, as the world was known, power. I mean, we step back today and we look at the pyramids and we look at the Sphinx and we look at all that was built. And that is just a, a micro part of the empire of the Egyptians. But it all disintegrated and is gone. Why? Because God let them go the way of those nations that reject him and deny him. Even Israel. Israel at the time of David. Israel at the time of Solomon. Great and powerful nation. But it came to its destruction and division. Why? Because they rejected God. And he let them implode in internal conflict, division against each other, and their enemies from without. Even when we come to the time of Christ, Jesus stood and he said, this place right here, this temple, give it a little while and every stone shall be pushed off. Seventy years from the time he was crucified, and Rome came in and destroyed it all. In fact, they went ahead and they drove the Jews out of Jerusalem. And here recently, they had found some caves. They're continually finding these things, but it's always interesting when they find a new one. So they found a cave where the Israelites had gone up in the Galilee region, and they had dug down in, and they were living and hiding in those caves because the Romans had driven them out and told them they could not come back. And so they lived underground. We don't hear about that. We don't talk about that. But the destruction that came upon them was great and mighty. When we look at texts like this, we're reminded of how all-powerful God is. You and I, were so, we're so limited. Because in our lifetime, I mean, what's the most one of us could possibly live? 120 years? I mean, I've known people over 100 years, but not much past. And so we think everything takes so long. Because in our life, it seems so long. But in the scope of history, it's so little. And so God tells us, learn from this lesson, people. Learn to draw near to God. Your politicians, don't let them influence you to be corrupt, territorial, taking advantage, predatory. Your preachers, don't let them be light. Don't let them defile the sanctuary. You as people, you, you who know and love God, dig in, hold on, be true. 
Because your God will never stop. He's never going to fail. He will always be there. And as hopeful as he is, there is a line. Don't let it get that. Don't let it get there. You and I should be praying for revival for our country. We should be praying for our church to be protected and to be strong. You should be praying for your, those who minister to you, your Sunday school teachers, your pastor, your, your worship leaders. Pray that they follow the leadership of God instead of the fads and trends of the day. We need to be people who honor the Lord. Things do change. Carpet changes. Styles change. Music changes. But we all have to be sensitive to where it all goes and how far it goes. Because we don't want to be those who stop hearing, who stop yielding, who stop seeking the Lord. Amen? Amen. That's the wrap-up for our, our text in Zephaniah. And we as a people should be stirred by what happened to those folks and pray that we don't see that happen in America. Amen? Amen. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Lord in heaven, I pray that you be with us as we're dismissed. I pray that you watch over us and care for us. Help us, Lord, to be those people who stay strong. Lord, I pray that you'd protect me as a preacher, as a pastor. Protect me from any temptation to go light to defile, to discredit. But help us to be true and faithful. As true and faithful as you are true and faithful, Lord. For we know you'll never fail. We thank you and praise you that you love us. And you want the best for us. And I pray you help us. Help us to walk in the path that you would have us walk. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming out tonight.